So I would like to uh, explain something about uh, Kala Chakra. Uh, it uh, is a uh, tantra practice, the highest class of tantra, and it has some uh, special features, but the uh, basic principle of what we're doing uh, with uh, Kala Chakra practice is the same as what we've been explaining concerning tantra in general. What uh, we want to uh, overcome, in other words, purify, get rid of, what we renounce is uh, the samsaric ripenings of karma. So we had that in general in terms of uh, ordinary rebirth with uh, you know, ordinary body and ordinary happiness and uh, ordinary confused activity and environment. So here in Kala Chakra, we just uh, add more detail to that. And we speak in terms of uh, external Kala Chakra and internal Kala Chakra. These are the uh, two levels of uh, uh, what ripens from karma. And samsara is characterized by suffering. And if we speak in terms of uh, what ripens from our network of positive force, that's our ordinary happiness, and that's the suffering of change. And how do we measure change? That's called time. Time is the measurement of change. So externally, we have the passage of uh, time in terms of uh, the motion of the planets and uh, calendar, these sort of things. And that marks out suffering, in a sense, because internally, we go through the cycle of a lifetime which you get older and you get sick and uh, you get old age and you die. This is the measurement of our suffering, is in terms of these cycles of time. The years pass by, you know, the motion of the planets around the sun. We look at it from a Western point of view. And uh, uh, as the years pass by, a lifetime passes by. And then you have another lifetime, then another lifetime, and all of that is filled with suffering. So this, these cycles of time, measured both externally, in terms of what's going on uh, astrologically, astronomically, I should say, and what's going on internally with the body aging, that's just an elaboration of what ripens from these networks of Buddha nature of karma. So instead of uh, these Buddha nature factors giving rise to these external and internal cycles, which are basically samsara, we want it to give rise to our attainment of enlightenment. So we practice with a Buddha figure, the Kala Chakra Buddha figure. This is uh, alternate Kala Chakra, alternate cycles of time, which are similar to what we want to purify and similar to what we want to attain. And we have the parallelism. And as is uh, said in some of the texts, that the more extensive the basis that uh, we want to purify, we want to get rid of, the more extensive the purification. So in Kala Chakra, we have the most extensive elaboration of samsara, the basis of uh, what we want to renounce, get rid of. So all the different uh, 
aspects of the path. In other words, the two stages of uh, practice of Kala Chakra, the generation stage where you're working with the imagination and the complete stage when you're working with the subtle energy systems uh, are going to have parallels with external and internal basis of purification, external and internal Kala Chakra. And as a Buddha, remember, we can appear in any form whatsoever. So a helpful form for uh, those who have the capacity to think in these huge, you know, extent, in a huge extent, a large extent of uh, this basis for purification, then Buddha appears in the form of the Kala Chakra Mandala, all the figures in it. And uh, there are uh, many ways of generating a uh, prototype of uh, a body of a Buddha, not just in our imagination, but uh, from the more subtle levels of uh, our, uh, what should we say, mental continuum. And Kala Chakra uses uh, one special method known as the devoid form, which uh, is uh, special to Kala Chakra. So this is uh, its uh, speciality. And the uh, particular methods that uh, one uses on the final stages are also quite uh, uh, specific to uh, Kala Chakra. But uh, for most of us, what we're going to be involved with, if we're involved with Kala Chakra practice, is the generation stage, so working with the imagination. And that is uh, very similar to what we find in the other tantras. It's just much more complicated. Some slight differences, of course, but uh, in general, it's uh, the main thing that distinguishes it is that it's so much more complicated, so much more extensive. Kala Chakra has a history of uh, the empowerment being given to uh, large masses of uh, people. Originally, it was given to all the inhabitants of Shambhala, not in order to convert everybody to Buddhism. That wasn't the idea but to uh, bring about uh, unity of uh, the country in order to be able to uh, face future invasions. So we can speak in terms of external invasions or internal invasions of uh, you know, ignorance and disturbing emotions. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama follows this tradition and uh, uh, gives the Kala Chakra initiation to large groups of people and for some reason, the Kala Chakra initiation attracts a huge number of people, unlike other initiations. And as His Holiness explains, the uh, point of why he gives the Kala Chakra initiation so frequently is, first of all, because he's asked to. But uh, besides that, he says the main point are the teachings beforehand, not the initiation itself. The, the initiation brings together a huge crowd of people huge mass of uh, participants, and for that period of time during the empowerment, they live together in a very peaceful atmosphere. So Kala Chakra empowerment is often uh, advertised as Kala Chakra for world peace. And although His Holiness tries to uh, make the initiation itself meaningful by explaining what's going on, there isn't really the expectation that uh, people are going to go deeply into the practice because most people are not prepared to be able to, they don't have the basis, the foundation for meaningful practice. But 
the general attitude of uh, Tibetan teachers and uh, the Tibetans who attend these initiations is that they are so-called planting seeds for future lives. So, as I explained, empowerment awakens or activates Buddha nature, and you have the vows, so it plants these uh, non-revealing form on the mental continuum. So this is going to continue into future lives. So it does, in fact, plant seeds for future lives. And when people are properly prepared, whether in this lifetime or in some future lifetime, to be able to actually undertake the practice, then fine, they have this basis. So it's in this way that uh, the initiation is given and received by Tibetans traditionally. And very few Tibetans actually practice it. It's very, very complicated. It's very rare to find a Tibetan master who can teach the system. Now, we Westerners come to Kala Chakra initiation. We certainly, most of us don't think in terms of planting seeds for future lives. We want to do something now. So this is very wonderful, especially if we have a proper motivation. And so we have uh, the uh, International Kala Chakra Network. We have uh, all sorts of uh, groups of people, Westerners, working to try to practice Kala Chakra. And the Tibetan teachers have been were qualified, have been very kind to uh, make uh, simpler Kala Chakra practices, not the full, full thing that uh, we can approach at our level. So wonderful. But uh, that doesn't diminish the importance of having the proper preparation. So without the basic uh, realizations of uh, sutra, it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to have, for example, uh, perfect shamatha, you know, perfect concentration, some concentration, fine, some bodhicitta, some understanding of voidness, at least something, so that uh, we don't go off into some, you know, really wild, distorted trip with our tantra practice. This is necessary. But uh, there are two things that I think are very important to keep in mind, two dangers that uh, we need to be aware of and try to avoid when we engage in some sort of uh, beginner Kala Chakra practice. First one is that the Kala Chakra teachings are very seductive. And what that means is that the teachings of Kala Chakra are so beautiful and so intricate and complicated in terms of the description of the universe and cycles of time and astrology and all of that and all the medical systems of how the energies move in the body and so on, that it seduces you, it's so attractive that you get stuck in all of that detail and you miss the actual point of a Buddhist practice. That is a danger you have to avoid. Don't be seduced by the beauty of the intricacy of the system and lose your focus on it being a Buddhist practice to attain enlightenment and be able to benefit all beings. As part of these Kala Chakra teachings, there's a whole encyclopedia about the external internal world. Wonderful, but that's not the main focus. But it is so intricate and so beautiful, you just want to get lost in it. That's the danger. And the other danger is a danger that we find in general 
with uh, all the Tantra practices, and Tsongkhapa himself points this out very clearly, which is to get too much focused on the detail at the beginning. And then you get discouraged because there's too much detail in the visualizations. If you start worrying at the beginning about what all the jewelry looks like and you know all the tiny details of what 722 figures are holding in all their hands, you're never going to do it. You're going to get totally discouraged. So Tsongkhapa says that uh, what we need to do is to get a general idea of the whole thing. Don't worry about the details. General whole thing. And then the imputation of the self of me on this, because this represents my not-yet-happening enlightenment. That's enough. And then, because you use that for concentration in the shamatha style, and the better your concentration, the more details will come into focus automatically. Don't worry about the details in the beginning. In Tantra practice, we have two aspects, the appearance and the so-called pride of the deity. The appearance is the clarity of the visualization. But this word clarity, it's translated as clarity, actually just means that there's something appearing. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily in focus with all the details. So we have to have something going in the visualization, some general appearance. And then the pride of the deity is the imputation of me on this because it represents my not yet happening enlightenment. So it is valid to label, to have that imputation of me on that. And the most important thing of those two is the pride of the deity and the imputation of me on that uh, basis of the visualization only works if there's an understanding of voidness. Otherwise, you think, you know, I am truly Tara, I am truly Kala Chakra, and then you become, you know, a schizophrenic, debilitated person running around, you know, thinking that you really are a deity. It's like, you know, I'm Jesus Christ. So that's the general advice for Kala Chakra practice. Get some preparation, you know, work on these basic uh, sutra principles. If we don't have them very strongly, at least something is necessary, and don't get seduced by the beautiful detail, and don't get caught up in the detail. Keep your focus on what the practice is all about. And hold on to those vows, the bodhisattva and tantric vows, and protect them as you would protect your eyes, as they say in the uh, text. You don't want to let go of these vows, lose them, by giving up bodhicitta, in other words, I'm not going to aim for enlightenment, this is stupid. And by forgetting about voidness and thinking, you know, I am God's gift, I'm really Kala Chakra, and so on. Yes. That's how you lose the vows. So hold on to that. And because we made that personal promise to the teacher that we have so much respect for, that we're going to keep these vows, then... You know, make this the first time that you don't give them up. So that relation with the teacher helps us to, not out of guilt, but out of respect for the teacher that we're going to hold on to them. Even if I can't do very much practice, at least I have my aim that I want to attain enlightenment to be able to benefit everybody. Okay? So what questions do you have?
this whole teaching in uh, Tantra of uh, turning this uh, desire into uh, blissful awareness and using that for uh, focusing on voidness. Are we working with an intellectual understanding of uh, voidness and analysis, or is it a transformation just of uh, the energy and using the energy? And how do we actually apply that in our daily life? You know, not only in terms of uh, sexual imagery, but uh, in general, in terms of uh, any sort of uh, object of uh, attraction. So what do we want to do in uh, Tantra? We want to do the same as in uh, uh, Sutra. We want to have inseparable method and wisdom. So method side, coming from uh, the uh, network of positive force, we either have uh, appearance of the body, so working with these Buddha figures, or remember the network of positive force also ripens into happiness. So we work with the blissful awareness, and that's uh, method side. And the understanding of voidness is coming from the side of uh, the uh, network of, of deep awareness. We want to put these two together. So we can have many different uh, types of uh, consciousness, mental consciousness, focused on voidness. We can have non-conceptual consciousness or cognition. We can have conceptual. We can have gross levels of consciousness. We can have subtle levels of consciousness. So there are many different levels of mental consciousness that uh, we can use. I'm using mental here in a very general sense to cover also subtlest level. So we don't use sense consciousness. Now, we can have happiness as a mental factor which can accompany either sense consciousness or mental consciousness. Happiness is, uh, that's the aggregate of feeling and it uh, is talking about how do we experience content of our mental activity. Experience it with happiness or experience it with unhappiness? Or do we experience it with uh, absence of either happiness or unhappiness, what's called equanimity, when we are absorbed in these higher dhyanas and uh, higher realms of uh, absorption? When we've gone more subtle than happiness and unhappiness. So any type of uh, sensory consciousness that we have, that we experience with happiness. So seeing something beautiful, listening to beautiful music, you know, tasting good food, smelling beautiful uh, fragrances, feeling something physical, physical sensation, whether it's sexual or not, you know, just somebody smiling at us, or, you know, all of these sort of things. That can be as a trigger to bring happiness that accompanies mental consciousness. That's what we want, not the sensory level. And then we want to use that mental consciousness, which is accompanied by happiness, and use that as the type of consciousness that focuses on voidness. So it could be voidness of happiness, it could be voidness of the mind that's experiencing this happiness, the voidness of the me that's experiencing this happiness. 
or all three of them, the three spheres. However, in Tantra, it assumes that we have done all that analysis and all of that uh, you know, work, so what you refer to as intellectual, beforehand. So that in the actual Tantra practice, you just have to remember it. You don't have to go through all that uh, analysis anymore. So with that blissful awareness, you remember voidness because you're familiar with it and focus on it. And on the generation stage, this is just in your imagination. So mental consciousness, conceptual, with imagination. You feel happy. Some level of that. Use that to focus on voidness. Now, that's the start. So we can use this in uh, the sadhana practice. Sadhana is a way to actualize ourselves as this Buddha figure. So we can use that when we have the offerings. So imagine that uh, light, you know, beautiful sight, beautiful music, beautiful food, you know, all this uh, beautiful fragrance of incense, etc. So all the, the sense objects. And you imagine that you enjoy that. And the offering goddesses, the offering gods, you know, that doesn't make any difference. You know, whatever turns you on. So, you know, beautiful sight of them, beautiful sound of their voice, beautiful fragrance of them, beautiful taste of their lips, beautiful physical sensation of their embrace. Experience that with happiness. It makes you, wow, it's great. But without this attachment, so the understanding of voidness. And this we can extend into our daily life. You see, you know, a beautiful person, and you thoroughly enjoy the beauty of this person. You know, it makes you happy. Oh, it's beautiful. You feel blissful, happy, understanding of voidness. You don't want to go and grab them. You know, I want them as mine, this type of thing. You just enjoy the beauty, the beauty of flowers, the beauty of, you know, music, lovely music, whatever. So you can extend that in life. And when we reach the complete stage, when we're able to access the subtler levels of mind, of consciousness, then generating those in the nature of a blissful awareness, the consciousness gets more and more and more subtle, it's more and more focused. So it's a method to get to that subtlest level, the clear light level. But with each level of it, use that to focus on voidness. So in one sense, you're working with energy. In the other sense, you're working with, you know, you've already done the analysis and you're just mindful of it again, you know, avoidness with that blissful awareness. And you have to be very careful here. If you have experience with drugs, let's say marijuana, or hashish, or uh, ecstasy, or any of these sort of uh, drugs, then you have some idea of the mind getting more and more blissful, more concentrated, but it's mixed with confusion. It's not really clear. It doesn't have understanding. But I think it gives you an idea of what we're talking about here. So no drugs, no confusion, but that more focused, more intense, blissful state 
which is not spaced out like you would have on drugs, but is very clearly focused. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about a blissful awareness. Don't get me wrong, I'm not recommending taking drugs, but I'm just saying that if you have that experience already in your history, then you have a little bit of an idea of uh, what we're talking about, minus all the garbage that comes together because it's a drug. And when you are in the proper state of mind during an initiation, then this is something that you can experience during the initiation. And it usually occurs during the so-called uh, deep awareness, the falling of the, it's called the falling of the deep awareness being. So it's at one point in the preparation phase in which uh, you imagine that you have bodhicitta and you imagine that with that bodhicitta mind, you have the understanding of uh, voidness and then you know, the teacher rings the uh, bell and also is focusing on that. And we imagine that uh, that insight falls into us in the sense of inspires, uplifts what we're trying to do into an actual experience. And that's usually where it occurs. That you get some sort of taste of what this is like if you're open and receptive enough. And that's the experience of the Buddha nature being activated to produce a blissful understanding of voidness. Something that's a facsimile of it, a prototype. Okay. Next. Uh, the question is, uh, say there, is, there are different types of succession uh, of Kau Chakra, and there is one uh, more elaborated, there is a abbreviated version, and recently when we received empowerment from Geshe recommended that uh, of course if we have more time we can do extensive one, uh, we can abbreviate it if not, and, but also we can take the guru yoga that we did before and uh, just change the ideas, uh, let's say Vajrasattva into Kau Chakra, <laughs> change a mantra and uh, uh, do in this way. Correct. So the question is, is it possible to do like this? And uh, another question is, how to manage to uh, do this practice daily? What are the general principles? How to maintain this daily practice? Mm -hmm. So the Kala Chakra Succession uh, Guru Yoga is uh, something that uh, is usually done like any succession uh, yoga three times in the morning, three times in the evening. So we can, in those three recitations, we can do extensively the whole thing three times, or you do it once the whole thing, and the second two times there are certain verses that you leave out. Also, we can, in general, it's optional to recite all the vows and the long prayer at the end, so you can even leave that out when you're doing it in the more extensive way. But we can also substitute, when we don't have time, one of the generic succession yoga practices, which has an extensive form, abbreviated form, and an extremely abbreviated form. And the way that it is formulated in the text is generic in general, which means that it's done in the aspect of the deities we find in Guhya Samaja practice. Since Guhya Samaja is the so-called king of tantras in which uh, most of the tantra theory 
is derived. The theory of, of Tantra practice comes from the, from the Guhya Samaja commentaries. So that's taken as generic. So we have blue Vajradhara in the first part, and we have blue Vajrasattva, not the white Vajrasattva for uh, purification, but the form of Vajrasattva in Guhya Samaja. Fine. However, we can substitute for Vajradhara and Vajrasattva any Yidam, any Buddha figure that we are practicing for, you know, as our main practice. Doesn't matter. Same, same. So basically, we do whatever we have time for. And, you know, it can be a certain, you know, one time a day we do the Kala Chakra, but the other times we do shorter forms, you know, the more generic form. We can do the, you know, the generic form during the week, but on the weekend, if we have more time, we do Kala Chakra. You know, be uh, flexible. Use whatever combination of these things uh, fits into your schedule, but at least do something every day. Something in the morning when we wake up, like you brush your teeth, so you also do succession practice. Even if you do the extremely short one, four lines, come on, you can do that even while you're brushing your teeth. You know, it's not so difficult to remember. Same thing at night. So there's no excuse to say, I don't have time. But the four line one is only for use in emergencies. Like you're really, really sick, you know, one should at least try to do the abbreviated form. It's not so long. And try to keep mindful of what you're doing in the succession practice, which is to keep these close bonds, these uh, samaya or tamsik, with the Buddha families. So being mindful of, you know, four types of love and, uh, you know, these sort of uh, refuge, these sort of uh, things. And fulfilling the tantric vow of being mindful of voidness every day. Right. Next. Uh, did I understand correctly that the more uh, subtler we make our mind, the more calm and blissful it becomes? The mind will become more subtle, either naturally, when we die, or it can be become more subtle through the power of meditation. So when it happens naturally when we die, it doesn't become more blissful. Death is not blissful. And it doesn't uh, uh, have the understanding of voidness. But through meditation, we can make that mind as it gets subtler to be blissful and have the understanding of voidness. Uh, you mentioned that uh, when we do a Kalachaka practice, we uh, begin with a general understanding, and then with time, we will naturally understand subtler details better. Uh, the question is how to understand that this actually understanding of uh, subtle details comes to us with time and not to confuse it with something else. Well, we're not talking here about understanding. We were talking about the uh, details of the visualization. Uh, yes, the question is actually the details of visualization, because there are many of them, and uh, uh, the question is how they will appear for us uh, gradually, naturally, and uh, maybe about your own experience of working with these practices when we begin 
and then we try to get more how we get more of them. Well, of course we need to have studied the details. If we haven't uh, learned them, you know, the power of listening, so reading about it, thinking about it, and then meditating, become familiar with it, unless we've gone through that practice with uh, the details, it's not going to happen just, you know, for no cause at all, that we're going to be able to uh, visualize all the details. So the general idea of uh, what we're talking about, Kala Chakra, uh, what it looks like. First, we need to have a general idea of what the palace looks like. And here in Moscow, you have a wonderful example of these Stalin-era buildings that have, uh, you know, a big square slab, you know, at the bottom of uh, the, you know, the first number of stories, and then another square slab on top of it, which is slightly smaller, and then another one slightly smaller on top of that. Perfect. Stalin architecture is Kalachakra Mandala. <laughs> That's what it looks like. It is four slabs, you know, square, each one smaller than the other, stacked on top of each other. And then that fourth one, that small one on top, has a, another story on top, which is sort of like a roof. So, if you want to get a feeling of the space for this, I mean, you talk about experience. So, you want to, I mean, I haven't done this myself, but uh, I've done it with other things, would be like, go on top of one of these buildings and stand in, you know, the middle of that top block and get this feeling, this vision of what it feels like in terms of this whole structure beneath you. Then you get a general idea of what it's like. When I lived in India, in the uh, beginning, I lived the first few years in Dalhousie. And uh, in Dalhousie, a little hike away from where I was living, you got to the peak of a mountain and you had a 360 degree view around you of this enormous, enormous vista. You know, with many, many, many kilometers away, big, peaks of the Himalayas on one side and the rivers of the Punjab on the other side. So standing on the top of that, then it gave me a sense of being in the center of a mandala, the palace, and way, way below at, you know, a distance, you know, is the ground and the cemeteries and the mountains in the cemeteries, and so on. So you get a feeling of the space, of the dimensions. That was very, very helpful. I always remember that. So you don't have a similar geographical uh, situation like that. Find, I don't know what the tallest building is in, uh, in Moscow, but in any major city, there's going to be one building that's the tallest. Go on top of it and look out and get this feeling of 360 degrees around you and down on the ground is the ground of the mandala and where the cemeteries are. So you get a feeling of space. This is very important. And then what I did with uh, my close uh, friend and Vajra brother, brother, Alan Turner, died some years ago, is uh, 
the measurements of the building, Sirkin Rinpoche taught us the measurements of the building very, very uh, strictly. And so you know how many body lengths away the wall is of the, uh, the building that you're in. And so we tried to find the hall, a large gymnasium actually, in which we could stand in the center and the walls of this uh, large hall were away from us at the distance of where the walls of the building were. So standing in the middle, you got a sense of where the walls were to be able to actually imagine being in this building. This is what I mean by the general sense of feeling for what it, what it actually is like to really be in this space. And then you have the measurement of how far away the various figures are from the central figure. So you have some friends stand you know, away from you at that distance. So you get some feeling for what it's like for various figures to be around you at a certain distance. Then you get a general feeling of what it's like. That's how you go about doing it, if you're really serious about it. And then in our Stalin-style building, we you know, imagine what it would be like for there to be figures on, in each of the these blocks, you know, the part of the block that sticks out from the part of the block that's, you know, in the middle of it. And you know where they're supposed to be from the uh, uh, description. So you have this general feeling of where all these figures are in space, and you can imagine that. It doesn't matter what they're holding. That you can fill in later. The important thing is to have this sense of the space the distances, and where the figures are located. And then, imputation of me on the whole thing. So this is how you, you know, go about having this general idea. And of course, you study what the details are, but don't get caught up in that. But the more that you're able to actually imagine, get a sense of all of this, and me is imputed on all of this. It's an imputation on all of it, just as me is an imputation on all the aggregates and all the senses and your digestive system and the respiratory system and the circulatory system, all of that. Me is labeled on that. So likewise, me is labeled, not labeled, impu an imputation on all of this. Label has to do with conceptual. Imputation is actually me imputation on that, objectively. As a Buddha, we are manifesting me. Not just me, but we are manifesting as an emanation. Emanation body, nirmanakaya. This whole array with all these various figures and the architecture, etc. So that's still nirmanakaya, body of form. Me is an imputation on that. And we are emanating in a way that parallels what happens externally and internally. So instead of ordinary elements and aggregates and sense organs, you know, sense, uh, sensors and objects and, you know, action things and, uh, you know, the action organs and the uh, actions themselves. Instead of that, we have all the figures of the mind mandala, for example. 
So that's what we mean when we talk about the general idea and how, you know, in a practical way, how you go about getting a general visualization going, some feeling for what it's like. So that's my experience. And personally, I don't worry about all the details of what everybody is holding. I try to stay focused on the main thing, which is voidness, bodhicitta, renunciation. Okay. So I think that uh, that's all for uh, this afternoon.